You're listening to Trek FM. What does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. Today on the show, we have Andy. Hi. Grace. Hey, everybody. And listener and patron, Ruman. Hi, guys. So today's main topic, we're going to be discussing Star Trek and religion, or what does God need with a starship? So, <laughs> Excellent. I'm the worst at Shatnering, everybody. <laughs> Just FYI, I'm aware of it. I'd be more um, concerned if you were the best at Shatnering, honestly. <laughs> so um, before we get there, we just, of course, want to talk very quickly about the Women at Warp Patreon. Uh, the Patreon is what helps us to do things like travel to conventions. It's getting us to us all to Star Trek Las Vegas this year, to Woo! have materials yeah. printed. And if you'd like to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash women at warp. See, Grace is going to get arrested dressed up like Kirk or something, and we're going to get a picture of her getting pulled into the cop car. We're going to put it in our in our uh, <laughs> oh, Facebook no. page for everybody to enjoy. It's going to be my file photo for the rest of my life, and I'm okay with that. Patreon <laughs> funds will not be used for bail money. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. <laughs> Am I going to start my own separate Patreon for that? <laughs> So we have a pretty big topic in front of us today, and, you know, religion and spirituality and beliefs can become difficult and sometimes heated and sometimes controversial as we talk uh, about them, especially in the context of Star Trek. So I wanted to, if everybody's cool with it, maybe talk about our own uh, personal, not necessarily beliefs, but history or feelings or whatever, identity uh, in terms of religion and spirituality. So I, I'll be the first one up, of course. Um, I was raised by a doctor of divinity uh, in the Baptist church. So uh, brought up in Christianity, conservative Christianity. I don't necessarily identify so much with that anymore, but I uh, still consider myself a person of faith, although much less conservative than my personal upbringing. Okay, and I was raised Jewish and I'm a part-time, am a part-time practicing Jew, but really consider myself more of a cultural Jew. I was raised by a hippie, so we didn't have any like organized religion in my house. Um, so I grew up pretty non, non-religious, very secular. And just in general, I would consider myself basically an agnostic. Uh, although, fun fact, I did study Islamic history pretty extensively in college, so I actually know way more about Islam than I do about Christianity, which is actually kind of strange because I'm from West Michigan, which is one of the most conservative Christian places in America, so it was always kind of interesting, like, zero zero background in Christianity and then just randomly learned a lot about Islam in college. You were just born to be contrary, weren't you? Well, that was kind of the whole point of having a hippie mom. <laughs> um, I was raised Muslim. Well, actually, so in terms of background, if you read Ms. Marvel, Kamala was me at 16, and that was my family. 
exactly how I acted, except I'm not inhuman as much as I wished I were at that age. Not an inhuman. <laughs> but that's pretty much like my family dynamic. But what I would say about views on religion, I guess I'm going to come at it with a more academic standpoint because as I was thinking about this podcast and how, you know, feelings and, and that all type of thing. What I would say is the way I like to view religion, whether or not you subscribe to it or have a belief in it, is at the very least we can all agree that it provides a framework of structure for our lives. It is very comforting to people, especially when thinking about death and the unknown. And that's how I am approaching religion with regards to how I'm understanding the framework of this podcast. I, I kind of look at it kind of anthropologically, like mm -hmm. stories, right? Stories that help us understand our lives and the afterlife and things that we don't understand. Um, and when I think of it that way, it makes it very easy for me to accept everybody's different truths that they come up with through that. So I've, I've always been, I've always found religion to be extremely fascinating and I, you know, I'm not religious myself, but I'm not ever going to tell anybody else, you know, what they have to believe. So I, I like to think that, you know, if you keep an open mind, there are a lot of different ways that you can view the world and they're all interesting and they all have some truth to them. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, some people, some of us like to create our own structure in the world. Some of us feel good with some guidance in having things defined as right or wrong or left or right or if this is what happens when you die or don't worry you'll see your puppy in heaven um, and there's no problem with that I think it is very scary to have a knack to navigate the world even as an adult and it's nice to have something to fall back on and something that you feel has gives you control even if you're you have control by giving this greater being control yeah the one thing I always think of when when discussions of religion come up is that at least in my own head I make a distinction between what is religion and what is faith mm -hmm. and I think of religion as being sort of the institution and the the overarching set of rules for a denomination or a sect that that distinguishes them as being different from another whereas faith is what is personal to an individual person and what they believe themselves. So I think that is a concept that may come up as well as we get into, I think, especially DS9. Yeah. So let's get into the Star Trek. I think it is pretty widely known that Gene Roddenberry himself uh, considered himself a secular humanist. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted that to come through in the Star Trek universe. He was pretty anti-religion. There's one quote I found that's, I condemn false prophets. I condemn the efforts to take away the power of rational decision, to drain people of their free will, and a hell of a lot of money in the bargain. Religions vary in their degree of idiocy, but I reject them all. For most people, religion is nothing more than a substitute for a malfunctioning brain. Harsh toke, G-Rod. Tell, <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> yeah, by all means. Have you have you said this to the insane amount of Jews working on your show? <laughs> For reals. It's it's intense, right? Yeah. Um, it's very ironic considering the amount of almost religious fervor that can go into some levels of Star Trek yeah. fandom, isn't it? Right. Well, so let us not lose sight of that level of irony. Yeah, when you Google Star Trek religion, there's actually stuff that comes up about is Star Trek a religion? I.e., <laughs> people are fanatic about it. 
Well, you're not entirely wrong. Yeah. In some yeah. circles, anyway. I knew this about Gene Roddenberry before I actually watched TOS all the way through. And knowing that, I was actually surprised by the amount of religion, or specifically Christianity, or Christian symbols, or references. Oh, yeah. That pop up in TOS. You're absolutely right. I mean, for considering that he has this very strong quote, I find it interesting that there didn't seem to be anybody who didn't have religion or didn't understand what a religion was. I don't think they ever ran across an alien species that's like, what do you mean some sort of higher being? Everybody, even if they didn't necessarily subscribe to it, understood the concept, which would mean that they thought about it or had it at some point or some sort of exposure to it. Yeah. And it is really funny to see um, how even if he's trying to draw on this secular humanist philosophy throughout the show and throughout the franchise, just how much uh, <laughs> of the standard Christian symbolism still gets in there anyway. Yeah, you're so strongly socialized into it and you don't even see it. It's such a big part of Western culture. It's hard to avoid, even if you do go into it saying, no, this is a society beyond religion. I, for one, love my secular Christmas. I love my yeah. secular <laughs> But was it unintentional? Was it, did it just something that just snuck through because you're socialized to, to expect Christian symbols in the U.S.? Or was it someone else in the writer's room? Was it the network well, telling them those... they couldn't say these things? I, I don't know. I haven't read through These Are the Voyages yet. Have you seen anything? I know you, you have, Andy. Have you seen anything about that? I can't think of anything right off the top of my head. Um, I know that they've softened some of the episodes because, I mean, we're talking about the Christian symbolism, but some of it is critical. The first one I'm thinking of is, you know, they have the, the, the episodes in which we find out that prior gods on Earth turned out to actually be aliens, like Who Mourns for Adonai is a good example of that, where we get the sense that, you know, maybe gods aren't real and then we were just worshiping aliens the whole time and and we see that kind of story thread throughout um i i can't think of anything from the these are the voyages are right off the top of my head that says that he was forced to put anything in every time that episode comes up in a conversation i'm always super shocked that some nerd doesn't just chime in like real original concept stargate <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked at how little it has happened. Well, I'm, I think when I, I think of these examples in TOS of bread and circuses, which Andy, you and I just talked about for mm -hmm. um, from there to here with the, the quote, sun worshippers, um, there's a time in the empath where they quote straight out of Psalms. And even in, in Who Mourns for Adonai, Kirk says, man has no need for gods. We find the one quite sufficient. And I remember hearing that for the first time, and what? <laughs> okay, so they don't believe in religion, but they believe in monotheism, apparently. Right? A little inconsistent there, Kirk, buddy. There's also the episode The Apple, which is basically Adam and Eve yeah. allegory. Something new but, and different in Western yeah, Br Brad and media. Circuses is interesting because... It's basically, if people don't remember which one that one is, it's the one where uh, Kirk and McCoy and Spock go to a modern-day Rome, like Rome never fell, and they get thrown into 
the gladiator fights, which is quite amusing. McCoy gladiating is my favorite thing. Is um, gladiating a verb? I love it. I have turned <laughs> it, it into a verb. It I, is I, I decided this long ago that gladiating is a new word, and I, I will use it whenever necessary. <laughs> Language um, is ever evolving! Exactly. But the the point of that episode, or the, the broader theme, is that Christianity was starting to spread throughout the slaves, and that's why they were rebelling. So in that case, you had an episode in which Christianity was a, a force for social good that was, you know, going through this modern-day Rome. And I would say that that's a positive interpretation of Christianity. I think it's a good point, yeah. TOS in general, when it comes to at least Earth religion is inconsistent and kind of weird. And we don't really run into much non-Earth religion, except maybe you could argue a little bit of Vulcan, but we see more traditions and cultural things than we do any of their, their spirituality. But then I think when we get to TNG, yep. that's especially in the early seasons, is where you are really seeing... Roddenberry's voice come through, especially through Picard in Who Watches the Watchers, where he says things like calling a belief in, in a supernatural being dark ages of superstition, ignorance, and fear. Yeah, that definitely lines up more with that quote from Roddenberry than most of TOS does. Maybe he just didn't feel like it was the right time. Maybe he felt like later on he had more freedom to, to push that, possibly. Well, there's definitely that he saw himself as Picard, right? As the oh, yeah. Wise man sort of dispensing the knowledge upon, in this case, the unwashed masses. And being weirdly aggressive to small to young men. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. I do think the Vulcans are very interesting, though, because we don't get a ton of explanation for, say, a religion so much, but we do get a lot of sense of their rituals and how they have all of these very uh, structured rituals for various things. And then we also know that they had, they had a philosopher that they basically, they kind of worship him. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if worship is the right word, but something Sirach, like it. Yeah, Sirach mm -hmm. is, is very much like a philosopher that changed their way of life, which mm -hmm. could be considered some sort of prophet, I guess, if you wanted to, to stretch that a little bit. Although I'm not entirely sure the Vulcans would. Yeah, I mean, I don't see it as a stretch. I'm going to completely derail the path we're going in right now. Because um, <laughs> one thing that I thought was super interesting is, you know, we get the races that are more human in their approach to religion or even emotion, right? You get the Bajorans, you get the, the Klingons, and you can see how these people with strong traditions would have religion. But then you get these races are, that are driven by logic or reason or optimization, and I'm really thinking of the Borg and the Vulcan. And when you see these societies have something like religion or religion itself, that's really interesting because if we subscribe to Roddenberry's view, we'll logic away or we'll rationalize away to not have religion. We'll, we'll just, we're just not going to need it anymore, right? Because we'll understand there's just this unknown and it is what it is and we'll calm ourselves down and not need, you know, some sort of a guidance and to be told that there is like a great forest or whatever, right? Um, so what I find really compelling is when you have, you know, religious epiphanies for someone like Seven 
or you know these rituals that Spock will subscribe to, when these are cultures and societies that believe in rationality so much and believe in logic and reason and evidence and proof that they don't see that as being at odds with having almost religious beliefs. I mean, I find that really compelling. That's something that I have always loved about the Vulcans is that they can be logical and scientific, but they don't exclude the possibility of something they don't know and they don't understand. And yeah, I'm not sure if I would call the Vulcan philosophy religion Mm -hmm. so much as spirituality, but I think it's nice to see such a logic-minded both character and race that can combine the two. And Spock himself is very open-minded to possibilities beyond his knowledge. He is totally okay with saying, I don't know, or something coming out of nowhere that he'd never thought possible and going, okay, because he is the type of person that is always questioning and Those kinds of people are always open to the fact that they might be wrong or that if they get new information, they might have to change their mind. Um, And to me, that's basically the definition of logic. I mean, I don't see how that would be contradictory to a religious perspective at all. It just is a difference in understanding. He doesn't find it impossible. He just finds it fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, always fascinating. Everything's fascinating. And I think data is a good example, too, to see how an android would approach something like religion. Yeah, that would have been really interesting if we'd gotten to see a little more of that, if if they had seen that as something worth exploring with data's character. That would have been I interesting. I think so. I mean, he does so much experimentation with being human. He explores sexuality. He explores, you know, all sorts of things. It would have been interesting for him to explore spirituality, because I don't think there's a single human culture that doesn't have some sort of a religious, spiritual, faith-based belief. It would have been interesting to see how his logical android brain approaches something like spirituality, and I think he would probably have some sort of a rationalization of why it's necessary. Well, the other thing with Data is that he actually has a creator, and he can point to him. You know, that's, that's very different than the, you know, the human experience in which we don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't have proof one way or the other, but data himself is a new kind of life that was created by somebody, although it was a scientist and, you know, a person rather than a deity, um, he does have a creator, which is super interesting to me. I don't know if he ever approached what he thinks happens to himself after he quote unquote dies or is shut off or is exploded does he just think i will just stop cease to exist and that's that well in the episode we get where um there's the time travel shenanigans with mark twain we get to have a brief conversation with him saying i find it comforting to know that i could die and that's one more thing that connects me as human Mm -hmm. i know that i will come to an end i won't have to just outlive all of humanity that gives me a little more semblance of humanity so that's pretty much as close we get i think and that's a very interesting perspective on death, right? Death is what makes us human. Yeah, definitely. Essentially is what he's saying. That's, that's very It seems like a very data thing to say. It is a very data thing to say. Thanks, data. That's very deep. TNG, I think, also gives us the most godlike creature of all, Q, right? I mean, what yeah. is a god besides omniscient, omnipotent, you know, omnipresent and all-powerful and immortal? Like, you've just given us God literally right there. Like, that is God. 
Yeah, and he is more, you know, based on kind of a trickster god archetype. Mm -hmm. Um, and we see that also in TOS with Trelane. And, you know, they, they, he follows a lot of those stories that we have all over the world, uh, in different cultures. Got Anansi, you've got Loki, you know, you've got all of these kind of trickster spirits that come and, you know, mess things up and then wander away. And that's pretty much what Q does all the time. But the extent of his power does mean that, I mean, say Q showed up on Earth in, you know, the 1400s, 100% he'd be considered a god. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, it just reminded me of that scene in Tapestry right at the beginning where where Q is trying to tell Picard, I'm God. He's like, no, you're not. I refuse to believe that the afterlife is run by you. The universe is not so badly designed. <laughs> Ah, Picard and Q forever. Yeah. <laughs> dream we dream we were. I believe you can get me through the night. <laughs> I mean, maybe the way the character of Q is built out is, you know, poking at views of gods, you know, in the Roddenberry sense, and that he's a god, but he's very fallible and he's very human, and it's nothing special, uh, I mean, because he's bored, right? At the end of the day, 99% of what Q does is driven by his extreme boredom, which is an interesting take, because we all wonder, if you were, if you did have the powers of Q, what would you do if you were Q? Pretty much, you would just be bored. You'd have a lot of fun for a short period of time, and then you'd just be really bored. Especially I know what Sue would do. She would do another season of Firefly. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people would. Okay. <laughs> What would you do with omnipotent power? Just real quick segue there. What would you do if you were the god in Star Trek? All I can think of is I would get tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> Mine probably has something to do with really good chocolate cake, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I would make a really good pizza chocolate cake here. I think we'd be good people to give omnipotence to, because none of us are like, <laughs> we wouldn't have I will take over the world. Well, it would depend on the world, Cake I guess. Cake Hamilton. <laughs> We're going to put together the greatest night in New York City ever. <laughs> oh my goodness. With our omnipotence. <sighs> I don't know. I can think of some pretty awful stuff I would do, but that might just be me. <laughs> do tell, Grace. Do tell. First of all, I might wreck some havoc with the Ferengi societal system, you know, just for funsies. <laughs> And because it sounds like it's a, time, a, a long time coming. Ugh, I would do a lot of time travel. Yeah. Well, straight off, I would do a ton of time travel. I'd do a lot of retconning. A lot of retconning. Mm-hmm. That's, prob that's probably mostly what I would do if I was <laughs> a Q in the Star Trek universe, retconning. But bringing up Q actually is a great jumping off point for, I think, the problem that you have going into exploring these alien races. Right, because you're going to, it, hypothetically, you know, on this starship, the crew is going to run into races that have different abilities. So we, we know the Beta Z have, or Beta Zoids, Beta Z is the planet, <laughs> Beta Zoids have this, this um, telepathic ability. And, yeah. you know, another race might have a different ability and things that humans don't have. So are they all powerful godlike beings or are they just a different race? And that becomes part of the conversation too. Like where is the line? And I think that 
pulls in to the conversation the wormhole aliens slash the prophets. Are they just another race that has this ability and are not bound by time? Or are they the prophets of the Bajoran religion? Or are they both? Honestly, Deep Space Nine gives us some uh, probably the most intensive, what am I saying, religious content in Star Trek. Absolutely. So this is a very good starting off point. I mean, from the pilot, the very, very beginning where you have um, Cisco, who's, you know, our new commander, being set up as, you know, this important figure in Bajoran religion. Yeah, how do you deal with that? Suddenly, I would like, deal. I would deal with it poorly. I would deal with it poorly. Cisco does a much better job than I do. As we can see, I would Cisco just deals with it very cautiously. I was like, John Ralphio, like, this is too much responsibility. I got to get out of this. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God. That's a crossover that someone has done out there. You know it. Now that we have said it out loud, we have willed it into the universe. You're all, there's this Earth show called Hamilton. (laughs) I was wondering. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big thing to deal with. I mean, he has so much power and responsibility handed to him. It's scary. I yeah. also I also like um seeing Kira because Kira is religious. It was it's really interesting to see that side of her be explored on DS9 and have her be so invested in this religion because I think in a lot of sci-fi they do subscribe to that, you know, Gene Roddenberry kind of idea that religious foolishness kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, like that, that religion. Right, religion and science and are, you know, not compatible, or logic and religion are not compatible, and here's Kira, you know, straightforward as they come, still having a very strong spiritual side, and kind of encompassing those those ideas together at the same time. And at least at the beginning of the show, she considers herself uh, most aligned with Vedic Wynn, who is the leader of an orthodox order. Which is a very interesting changeover to see happen with Kira. Just the way that plays out. One thing I will say, especially with the Bajorans, I mean, Vedic later Kaiwin is one of the main antagonists, right? She's, she's one of the baddies. And I think it's, it speaks to, it's a critique of hyper-organized or dogmatic religion, where they do show the Bajoran religion in this positive light, but at the same time, um, you do have Kaiwin, who is one of their big enemies. So it's, you know, about power and corruption, you know, a not-so-veiled criticism of hyper-organized religion. Yeah, there are even multiple times where uh, Louise Fletcher, the actress that plays Wynne, referred to her as, as um, I play the space pope. And and I mean, like, old medieval-style pope. <laughs> yeah, because she had the hat and everything, space pope hat. She had the, she had the pope hat, she had yeah. the addiction to power. You know, the she space had the pope is reptilian, okay? <laughs> <laughs> is there a space pope mobile? <laughs> yes, I really hope so. No, the the win thing is so watching it it struck me, right? Because with being raised by a a pastor and seeing the politics behind um some of the denominations and the associations in the churches, you see the power struggle and you can see people who aren't not out to to serve their congregation but are out for themselves and this character of of Vedic and later Kai Wynn was 
it really hit home for me in a lot of ways. Like I could see people that I knew acting this way and it reflected a lot of what I was seeing growing up in that situation. She's really represents the dangers of institutions. Yeah. So institutions can be corrupted and they might have high ideals, but as soon as you have people within them, you know, uh, the Catholic Church is a great example of this uh, in that, you know, it becomes an actual money-making organization. You know, it becomes a place where people have jobs and careers and they want to get ahead in their career. How do you balance those things? How do you make sure that it doesn't become corrupt? Any institution can become corrupt. Not just religious, but, you know, literally any kind of group of people can become corrupt. (laughs) But it's a danger, too, of are you following the the leader or are you following the faith? I got to have a pretty wild experience on uh, with my first watch through of Deep Space Nine because I started it um, when I had left home for college and was on my own and finally away from pretty much uh, the religious community I had grown up with and was sort of at a point of like, well, if this isn't for me, I can just kind of shrug it off right now. I'm away from all this. And it was especially driven home based on the fact that the Bajorans are culturally a lot in a lot of stories in Deep Space Nine used as an, um, an, uh, not allegory, a stand in for the Jews in a lot of ways. And that was really, that made it a very interesting situation for me because it was like, well, what part of this religion do I stick with and examine? What do I keep with me culturally and spiritually? And what do I need to let go of because I don't have because I don't have to keep that as an integral part of my faith, which was especially fun because I was at a school with a lot of anti-Semitic issues. Yay! <laughs> so I got to actually have this really great experience while watching through the show, watching uh, Kira's transition through her faith and her just have this incredible character arc. That, where, that her faith is very heavily ingrained into while I was kind of trying to grow into it in my own way. So that's part of why I think I'm pretty attached to her as a character. Because I would have never thought that, uh, you know, alien terrorist from space would make me a better Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Just goes to show the power of storytelling. Yeah. You know, if they do it right, you can really connect to it on a personal level, and it makes a difference in how you see your own life. Oh, absolutely. What must it be like to have your boss be the emissary, though? Like, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, dude. Although I kind of like how that's such an initial factor in uh, her, uh, Kira and Cisco's relationship. Him being just like, no, no, just, I'm your boss. That's it. Okay, let's not make this a thing. Please, dear God, dear yeah. me. <laughs> well, that's part of Cisco's growth, too, right? Yeah, when absolutely. he first gets to the station, he, he doesn't want anything to do with this. It's like, this is thrust upon me, and I am not into it. And by the end of the series, Andy, cover your ears. <laughs> cover your ears and hum. Hum, <laughs> I say. I'm good at humming. Go, I'm not go saying he's it. he's into it, but he's definitely, like, it's, he's it's almost like it. he's becoming one of them. He's embraced it and he's taken on this role and he's not dissenting from it anymore. He's learned more about the Bajorans and learned more about himself because of how they see him. I think he sees um, that he has a position to be the figure that they need at this point uh, for their people. And he 
realizes how far he needs to go with that. One thing I really always admired about Cisco is he was very good at putting himself in somebody else's shoes. So while oh, yeah. he may not subscribe to their religion or their spirituality or their faith, and while he saw the wormhole, quote-unquote, gods as aliens... Um, which is the whole debate in, in the hands of the prophets. He oh, understood, like one. I said, his role and responsibility as emissary in terms of what he represented to them. So while he may think a certain thing, he respected their faith, and he was just—he was always very good at them. That's why, as a leader, I think he is just as a boss, as a leader, as somebody who's in charge of something. I think that's one of his strongest suits. So they have that episode where Keiko goes up against Wynn on how they're going to be teaching Bajoran spiritual beliefs in her classroom. And it that whole episode is super interesting to me, but it does set up this great moment between Cisco and Jake, in which Jake is like, this is stupid. And he's like, it's not stupid. It's just different. And it's important to them. It's not stupid exactly. to them. So we have to respect that it's important. Yeah. And that moment just really kind of encapsulates what it means to be open-minded to me. Just being able to respectfully understand how other people see things differently than you do. And that doesn't make them stupid or wrong. Not to mention how many questions that episode raises with the whole, uh, the whole possible analogy of Starfleet just kind of coming in here and the whole benevolent white people trope. That gets kind of mm. used in. The white savior complex. Exactly. The Starfleet savior complex yeah, that they've kind of got. <laughs> it's like, Keiko, is this really within your right to be teaching these people about their own religion? Just saying. I, th- I think that episode is so strong because there's no easy answers. And everybody's position is represented as a valid one. And I really enjoy that. And that's a, a good example of an episode in which you see Kira... Uh, struggling with, you know, her beliefs there and, you know, seeing, you know, the strong spirituality that she has. And Great again, episode. And again, we get to see the start of her sort of dealing with Wynn as going from, okay, this is someone I get behind to, oh, wow, I'm slowly realizing that you and I's faiths do not align and I have to, some stuff to question here. <laughs> Should we talk parades? Why not? They got a whole religion with demons and everything, except their wraiths for some reason, because that's a more interesting word. I don't know. It's very interesting to see sort of the good guys and the bad guys, right? You got the wormhole gods and you got the pirates. Yeah. It is really cool to see them adding on to their, uh, the sort of religious structure of the Bajorans. Not as just like, to, um, I want to say to give them something analogous to our understanding of, uh, the Abrahamic faiths, because there are these good creatures that live up in the sky, and there are these bad ones that live trapped in the earth. It is cool just to see it expanded upon and given more, you know, shape as a full religion, not just, we believe in nice things. And as a full culture, too, because yeah, exactly. we're finally seeing diversity among a planet. I think also, you, it's very hard to separate religion and culture and society, and knowing what the Bajorans had to go through, it would Hard to swallow that their religion is all sunshine and ponies and rainbows. Right. Because they had a pretty rough time, to yeah. say the least. You would think that spiritually, or, or in, in terms of faith, they would want to be able to explain these bad things that happened to them and befell them. Right. It's kind of like uh, the stance of Joseph Campbell in, the, in his talk about the power of myth. Myth is the initial way we receive the earth, and it's the fa- I'm paraphrasing, and it's the foundation on which we build our faith. Which is, uh, so why wouldn't we have that in alien cultures? It's really cool to see that explored. And in terms of DS9 and having 
IRL gods. Um, what about the founders? What do you guys think about that whole dynamic they've got going on? I really like the fact that in the same show we get to have the juxtaposition of faith with the Bajoran gods and the founder and the founders in the same sort of spit and distance of each other. I like the fact that we get to see two juxtaposing faiths in the same series. And I really like that um, <laughs> you can kind of see them as Old Testament religion and New Testament <laughs> religion, if you yeah. think about it. Just the one faith that just requires absolute servi- subservience and obedience versus the one that's like, love your neighbors, believe in each other, respect the wormhole. <laughs> I really do like that in a single series, we get that breadth of uh, religious creativity. It's also the more meddling gods versus the like sort of benevolent caretaker gods. Yeah, we get it, benevolent it is that gods old testament I will smite you. Yeah. yeah. It is very much but I mean they, they exploit it, right? They're very intelligent creatures. They absolutely oh, yeah. exploit have the Jem'Hadar be literally addicted to a substance and yeah. have a whole you know some of the best episodes in my opinion were these Jem'Hadar episodes. They were just oh. Like, that is just, you know, that is dogma. That is not even religion. That is just blind dogma. The interactions between the founders, the Jem'Hadar, and the Vorda, you get some really interesting dynamics based entirely on faith and subservience. Yeah, it's just, and Wayun is just everyone's favorite guy you love to hate. Oh, God. He totally is. Oh, God, I love, I love Wayun because I love to hate Wayun. You just need him. Need in every there. incarnation of him, there's something new to take away. <laughs> but it's amazing that they have this highly, highly structured religion, really, right? Their society is their religion. There's really, there's no, you know, tearing it apart. And it's a religion based on war and dominance and conquest. And you know, It's a religion, than... but it's all um, kind of the front for this entire Machiavellian power structure Absolutely. for their culture. I mean, if you, if any of you guys watch the Borgias, it's, it's pretty much like... <sighs> That super corrupt, I mean, oh, man. And it's another take on that question of how more advanced does a race have to be to be considered godlike. Yeah. But let's take a total left turn and talk about Voyager for half a left second. Left turn at the Delta Quadrant. And that takes us, I think the, the biggest thing that sticks out in my mind, thinking of Voyager in, in terms of this discussion, is Chakotay. Yeah. And kind of how unfortunate it is that you've got this character who is spiritual in an earth religion way in um, a very earth in a very earth connected right, way and is he's he a human out. from earth that that actually has spirituality but the the spirituality that he's practicing is just kind of this half made up half conglomerated idea of what native peoples actually believe. It's hand wavy woo woo. Yeah. yeah. Voyager could have benefited so much from uh, some native consultation on it of of any kind, really. Any kind. Well, they at had all. someone, he just turned out to be a fraud. <laughs> I mean, it's the only time in Star Trek thus far that I can think of a human. A main main cast human practicing a faith of any kind, and it is just it's disappointing in almost every way. It's disappointing that we uh, were given such a great opportunity with Chicote to see not only 
an underrepresented religion, but to see a practicing, a human practicing religion in Star Trek and we get the hand wavy, just, oh, mysterious natives. This is not, <laughs> this isn't an actual tribe. We're, we're just making shit up here. We wanted to go on a spiritual journey. We got the USS make some shit up. Yeah. It was, it's definitely a very unnuanced view of Native American culture. And one thing I did love, though, was Balana. She had, it's interesting because I always love comparing Balana and Worf in their sort of half human, or not really half human, but you know, their, their half humanness, even though Worf is full blooded Klingon, you know what I mean? Um, and their struggle, their cultural struggles of which one they would want to identify with. And Worf, you know, starts off in one direction, Balana sort of goes the other. And her sort of embracing of religion, um, when she has to go find her mother in Barge of the Dead. Right. I love that we get to see um, Balana as someone who very much has kind of, has her own level of commitment to her Klingon heritage. And is like, no, this this is what I'm keeping at arm's length. This is what I'm holding on to. It's very great to see um, someone who comes from, especially such a strong culture like the Klingons, that can be very easily just written off as space Vikings. Although the Barge of the Dead kind of seals that a little bit, doesn't it? Um, but anyway, someone who's making her own definition of her faith. And it will never cease to bother me that, uh, specifically in Barge of the Dead, we get all these humans and non-Klingons around her telling her how to define her Klingon culture. How she needs to be doing it. It is unhappy making. But you know what I really appreciate about Star Trek and these these alien characters that do have a faith of any kind is that none of them are brushed off. You know, we see in in the Vulcan spirituality faith, we see Katras being transferred. You know, in we see Barge of the Dead, we see the wormhole aliens, and it's almost as if what's being put forth is that there is some truth in every belief. Which Unless is, you are to Paul, in which case your faith is just a running gag to the humans. <laughs> well, no, there's some in late Enterprise. There's some real, real Vulcan religion stuff that happens. It takes a while to get there, though. <laughs> Dorian, are you talking well, about a Dorian incident? I'm talking about a lot of things. I'm just <laughs> from takes, day one. They're like, oh, she's doing her weird alien thing again. Well, she's that's like, Enterprise, and it takes Enterprise a while to get anywhere. But, I know, right. <laughs> But this this idea of whatever you believe is true for you is a concept that I think was really first solidified for me by the Discworld series of books by Terry Pratchett. Yes. And it's yes. it's just that concept of whatever you believe is what happens to you when you die. That's how he takes it. And I think that's actually a really beautiful concept. Like, it's a very positive concept. Yeah. And I really wish we could see that used more. In. Whatever you believe will happen is what will happen. It's interesting to see how cultures are shaped by how religion, their religion defines what happens when you die. Right? You mentioned Klingons the space Vikings, and that's one very big thing in their culture is, or in their religion and culture, is that if you die in war, this noble, honorable death, you will go to Sovokor versus having a dishonorable death, in which case you will go to basically purgatory. Or like if the Ferengis, if you led a competent and and profitable life, you'll go to a great treasury in the afterlife. Right. It definitely shapes how they act as people. I mean, with, with Vikings, 
Viking invasion of England was so frightening to the English because they did not fear death. They were just going being like, bro, kill me. You know, uh, I'm going I'm to be drinking with the gods. I'm ready, awesome. buddy. Make yeah, it happen. Like the, whereas the English were just so scared because they had this, you know, very, um, you know, punishment based, you know, they, Christianity was very, very different. So they feared death in a way that the Vikings did not. And that made their war dynamic very different. Whether or not it's true or not or good or bad is kind of irrelevant. My point really here is that it made the dynamic different. If you're going into war saying it's cool if I die, that's very different from being worried about your wife and kids back home. Right. Um, and I think Klingons are very much like that. And so what happens when that gets challenged? I think Neelix is a good one. Oh, that going here yeah. to Mortal Coil, which is actually one of my favorite episodes of Voyager, the more I thought about it, where he dies and there's nothing. And I mean, in the context of, of Neelix and Talaxians, he's the last of his kind. He watched everybody get killed. Well, He's not actually last of his kind, but, you know, thought he was the last of his kind. Everybody get killed around him, and the only thing that helps him go keep going is his faith that when he dies, he'll be with his family again. And when he, you know, when he quote-unquote dies and there's nothing and he comes back, I mean, he's suicidal. It is really an incredible performance uh, that's given also with uh, Ethan Phillips in that episode, and it is just really... I think if they were going to do any kind of standalone story about the comedy character kind of becoming unhinged, that that was a really good way to go. It was, it was, it was hard to watch. It was one of those things. And I think it's really interesting that we get to see that in juxtaposition to, um, I want to say it was season one or two where they visit a planet where there's a lot of, um, where there's a group of aliens who believe that when they die, they will go essentially to heaven. And then they find out really that when they die, they just get uh, teleported to a meteorite floating out in space. And they all, and one of them gets brought back from the dead and has this big, but what does it mean then? My faith has been a lie. And I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly. Isn't it Neelix who kind of gives solace to them in that one? And then we get to see Neelix kind of lose that in this, which makes it all the more kind of cruel. Yeah, Neelix's character evolution has just always been one of my favorites, actually. And like you pointed out, as a sort of comic character, to realize that, you know, how, you know how you know some happy people, and if you're not a perpetually happy person, you're just kind of like, oh, those happy people, they don't, you know, ignorance is bliss, kind of. But then you realize that some of those people, like Neelix, do that in spite of where they've come from or what they've seen. He, he is a happy being because he's chosen to be happy. And that's very compelling about his character. He is a comfort to people, not just because he was raised all happy and everything is, you know, always grand for him. It hasn't been. He's had a harder time than most people. He chooses his happiness. And I think that that depth of Neelix's character makes him very compelling. Which is funny, because that's kind of his faith right there outside mm-hmm. of his religion. Aww. <laughs> So I do want to talk about Enterprise real quick. But actually, the the stories about uh, the Vulcan reawakening, reformation, whatever term you want to use, the Kirshara arc, is actually one of my favorite parts of Enterprise, where they're finding the writings of Serac and they're, they're re-examining their, how their culture has built up over the last several decades or even centuries to to reestablish 
the logic and the underpinning philosophy that we know from Spock and from Tuvok and from the Vulcans of earlier series that were farther in the future. And I think that's a really interesting arc of episodes, especially when you think about uh, some of the movements in, in some Earth religions about, you know, go back to the text, don't, don't let it get corrupted, look at what, what your, your holy writings actually say. But other than Paul, we really only hear about um, sort of investigations that from, from Dr. Phlox, he says he has visited a Tibetan monastery and atta- attended a mass at St. Peter's Square. I do really appreciate the fact that Phlox has been super like, oh, this is this is what er- humans are about. I'm going to look into that versus how all of the humans are like aliens. Am I right? So yeah, it's, it's really cool that Phlox is interested in, in human culture, but I think it's also showing us that at least at the time of Enterprise, religion is still playing at least a cultural part in Earth, on Earth. Because there is still a Tibetan monastery and there is still mass being held at St. Peter's Square. So religion still plays a role, at least in the 22nd century. And we're left kind of wondering, what happened there? Or does it still? Because in TNG, we have references to to festivals in, in Data's day. He he makes a note about the, the Hindu festival of lights is what he calls it. Um, in TOS, we have references to a Christmas party. In Voyager, the doctor is dressed, dresses up as a Roman Catholic priest. Like you do, apparently. <laughs> he would. Yeah, he would. <laughs> he would. I mean, it was in the holodeck, but still, it's still a, a cultural symbol. Yeah. Religion isn't dead entirely. Right. It is very interesting to uh, how much Star Trek kind of forces us to think about how religion will evolve into the future, because Star Trek is future-based, and it makes us wonder, looking back on how much religion on Earth has evolved, how is it going to evolve in the future? And that's really part of the fun for me in examining uh, the cultures and religions of Star Trek, how much it makes you question what's going to happen for us next. Yeah, I mean, there's the Arthur C. Clarke quote about how any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You know, we have, even if we think about ourselves as the future from when all of our religions were founded, it's we have advanced so much technologically, societally, and yet we still subscribe to or believe in or at least use as guidance these books that were around when people scratched in the dirt to grow plants. And, you know, had horses and the idea of, you know, getting in a metal tube and flying somewhere. That would have been witchcraft. Yeah, that would have been witchcraft. And it's it's very compelling that we still have these religions, that they're so salient and they're so lasting. There must be a reason when maybe if we're in another 2,000 or so years in the future or more, they may still be around in a different format. Or maybe as Roddenberry would say, we'd all just grow out of it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just using my self-control not to start singing that Jews in space ditty. Oh no. <laughs> Is there any aspect of this that you guys want to explore that we haven't talked about yet? I want to talk about the Borg. Let's talk about the Borg. One of my favorite episodes. So I consider it so this is a bit of a stretch because they're not religious, but their religion is perfection, right? They yeah. 
go out. They have faith in perfection. They do. They have faith in pure optimization. As a data scientist, I can appreciate there is something about a purely optimized something, anything, and anybody who is type A, you know, having a, a super, a, a super organized anything is just, it's, it brings so much joy. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I can't remember the name of the episode. Oh, Omega Directive. We're seven witnesses perfection. The omega molecules are stabilized, and she just has this moment where she just sees it, and that that is, you know, she's just done. You know, that's she just sits back and is like, oh my god, I just I just saw perfection, um, and I find that you know so interesting about the board. I mean, yes, what they're doing is a terrible thing, but they're that's what they are doing is trying to make themselves perfect. They're acquiring technology from other races, intelligence, ideas, and that is almost calming in a sense because it makes them immortal. So I guess going back to the whole death. Their goals are good. Their methods not so much. Yeah, right? Like, I, I see what you're trying to do there. But uh, <laughs> I respect maybe you should that. ask people first. Maybe you should ask people before assimilating. See if they want to assimilate. Uh, but, you know, if, if you if you knew that when your physical being died, you live on in this collective and you would actually be mentally stimulated, you would learn things, you could contact other people. That's kind of comforting that even if your mortal being is gone, that you live in most religions believe in a soul. We try to make ourselves immortal, if not physically, then, you know, sort of this astrophysically. And that's, that's really the same thing, right? You live on in the collective. So, yeah, again, if, if it isn't, even if it isn't a religion per se, they've definitely got a, a value of faith there. Yeah. Very strong one. Yeah. Well, that doesn't. That still doesn't explain why they just suddenly have a queen out of nowhere. Because they're bees, Grace. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> drones, queen. Get it? They're not a get true it? hive mind if they've got a leader, though. <laughs> because they I needed a sexy on villain. <laughs> I get it. We needed a sexy lady. <laughs> Never thought I'd sound defeated saying that. <laughs> Anybody who can pull off being sexy balls with wires coming out of themselves, like thumbs up. Like two thumbs up. Skills. That's skills right there. Skills. The only thing that I would say that we haven't touched on, and I'm not even sure if we need to, to be honest, is um, Vulcan Jesus. Jesus? Jesus. Do you mean Sirach? No, I mean Cybok. Uh, we pretend Cybok didn't happen. That's fine with me. <laughs> I'm speaking of myself, I guess, but... Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. I never understood that story, and I was like, why is this happening to me? They wanted a space <laughs> televangelist, apparently. So they went with Cybok? <laughs> Question mark? Why does God need a spaceship? <laughs> Cybok kind of looks like a space Salman Rushdie. Just looking at his he totally does. <laughs> oh my god, he totally does. So are we now going to start saying, oh my gosh, Cybok totally dumped Padma Lakshmi and was a total schmuck about it? <laughs> if any single phrase of good comes from today. I want it to be that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a thing. We talked about, you know, where's the line between advanced alien race and and godlike being, right? But there are several examples in the Star Trek universe 
of an advanced culture taking advantage of a not-so-advanced culture and pretending to be their gods. Chicanery and humbug, if you will. <laughs> We've got, top of my head, what's her name in um, Devil's Do? I was thinking about um, her anyway because I was thinking about so we've talked a lot about God and we've talked a lot about, about creations, but Devil's Do is an episode in which we kind of get to see uh, different cultures and their, their version of the devil. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of neat. We get to briefly see uh, the Klingon devil. Right. It's pretty metal looking. Ardra, by the way, is her name. Yeah, um, and I've always found that to be interesting. I think what a culture fears is as at least as interesting as what they worship. And I wish that we had a little bit more of that, I guess. But it is an interesting kind of glimpse at, you know, the various cultures and, and you know, what they fear. And, and an interesting reminder that a lot of different religions and cultures do have a lot of base uh, beliefs that show up in a lot of them, like a devil. Yeah, I mean, there's there tends to be some some similar ideas that uh, show themselves in most religions, and that makes total sense to me. There are obviously sometimes cultural differences, but for the most part, I think people fear death, you know, they fear temptation. I think that a lot of our fears can be universal. Therefore, a lot of these concepts can be universal. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, we see this trope a lot in in TOS too, which you brought up at the very beginning, Andy, with the the aliens that humans previously worshipped as gods now on other planets. Yeah, but it also comes up actually a lot in Voyager. We see it with the the Ferengi that we run across in the Delta Quadrant, who were holdover from TNG. Uh, we see it in the Voyager episode Blink of an Eye when uh, Voyager winds up visible in in the sky of this planet for centuries, but it's just a short amount of time to them and they become a religious icon. And even Belana becomes a, a mythical figure for an alien planet in an episode of Voyager. A very begrudging figure. <laughs> well, but it still happens. <laughs> yeah. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about it, it's it's a way to explain the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, clearly they thought about it. That's why you have the prime directive. That's, that is literally what they're worried about happening. And it happens in Who and Watches the Watchers. I loved the episode, actually. You referred to the one with the, uh, the Ferengi. Uh, mm. Because we were just playing the game earlier of what what would we do if we were you know, gods, and that's what they would do. They're like, give me all your money. I'm going to tax you some more. I'm going to tax you more and more. Rub my ears. The great taxator from the sky. And pretty much. like, So I'm like, I wanted cake. You wanted Hamilton. They wanted their ears rubbed. You know, like, that's it. <laughs> They're a people of simple needs. Oh. They're not the gods we want, but damn it, they're the gods we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure anybody deserves them. No. No, they don't. I can think of a few writers who could. <laughs> so I think that just about does it for today. Thank you for joining us for this awesome conversation about religion in the Star Trek universe. But this is just one of the many topics being discussed on the Trek FM network recently. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. You've heard Chief Trip sign on. Uh, I'm serious, Ken. Actually, out of the chair, please. Okay, okay. 
God. <laughs> I guess the Commodore has the con. <laughs> Earl Grey. Did you really write down Groppler Zorn on this list? <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> this is before he achieved Groppler rank. He was only a Soplar. He wasn't a Groppler lad. What fruit did he like before he got to apples? <laughs> the orb. I want to hear Worf give a command sometime like, one quarter ramming speed. And then <laughs> yes. someone says, Captain, Regulation specifically states that we cannot go at one quarter ramming speed while we are in orbit of a planet. <laughs> the ready room. To what extent is this episode, uh, you know, the, the writers and producers of Deep Space Nine turning the mirror back at the fans? You know, I mean, I think all of us Star Trek fans at one point or another probably retreat into this universe we love, Star Trek, that is, it's a fictional world. What are you talking we about, Zachary? Are you, you suggesting that, real? like, fans yeah. might decide to buy microphones and, like, talk about it like it's real for hours on end? To the journey! Next one in line is Spirit Folk, and we already agreed that that is just not necessary for anybody, and let's not torture them with it. Good, let's move on. The characters in the Fairhaven Hollow program begin to suspect <laughs> the Voyager crew after they witness several supernatural occurrences. Commentary, Trek Stars. Tokyo Drift really is the perfect subtitle. Like, you could literally put Tokyo Drift onto the end of any movie, and it would instantaneously become a movie that you would have to see. Citizen Kane, Tokyo Drift. The 602 Club. I hate it when shows that are grounded in reality, but obviously they're not, and they have their characters go through socially important uh, experiences. Literary treks. It is very much every one of the characters, you know, who, who finds themselves sort of pulled into the conflict that's the heart of this story, they are reacting to a fear of the other. Meta Trex. I'd love to answer your question, but I can't get the uh, visual image out of my mind of <laughs> B. Arthur and Betty White in Starfleet miniskirts and go-go boots. I can totally picture the Golden Girls as Klingons. <laughs> Melodic Trex. What I decided to do was not only would I pick a six degree of separation, not only would I do it musically, but I was only going to do movies that were composed by people who had composed for Star Trek. Saturday Morning Trek. Dorothy had a little bit of a fit with the uh, animators. They had said over and over again, there is no moon in the Vulcan sky. I think it was like the first episode that aired of the original series when they mentioned this because Uhura walks up to Spock and she's like, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me that I would look good in your moon. And he's like, Vulcan has no moon. I'm not surprised. <laughs> that is an uncanny Uhura. Continuing mission. Yeah, and of course, another great thing is when it's it's all finished and you look at it and go, yeah, we made that together, yeah. That's that's one of the greatest moments and people respond to it and say, oh, that's that's pretty well made, the effects are great, the actors are, are great, uh, even though they're Dutch trying to speak English, right? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
We also wanted to let you know about the Trek FM Patreon. Trek FM is a listener-supported network. You can help us keep the Star Trek discussion coming by pledging a donation at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Every little bit helps keep Women at Warp and the other Trek FM podcasts up and running. So once you're done with the show, again, please consider hopping on over to patreon.com slash trekfm. So, Ruman, where can people find you on the internet? You can talk to me in Babel Conference or the Women at Warp Facebook page. Andy? Uh, easiest way is Twitter. Uh, I'm at First Time Trek. Grace? You can find me on Twitter at Bonecrusher Jank and in your nightmares. <laughs> it's true. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S P A L T O R. Thanks so much, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>